Blog Talk Radio. Hi, welcome to Witches Whiskey and Wit. I'm Jason. I'm the host of this show. As always, there's probably going to be a witch on the show. My guest today is Mortellus. They are a witch. I have whiskey and a glass next to me. So we have whiskey. Depending on what I say and Mortellus says, there will be wit. Of course, you can never promise that there will be wit as long as you're drinking the whiskey. It'll happen. I hope you're doing well. I hope quarantine is treating you well if you're still sheltering in place. And you probably should mostly be sheltering in place. It's probably okay to go outside and have a drink somewhere. But don't go inside anywhere and avoid the beach, especially if it's crowded. It's been tough. It's been a really tough last four months, I think. On the good news front, for those of you who know who I am and follow me a little bit, I have just found out about my next three writing projects for Llewellyn, and I'll be signing contracts for all three of them at the same time. Why? Because I don't like myself. So at least I have work for the next three years. Hopefully by then we can once more go outside again. I'm hoping that's the case. If you know anything about me, and I just want to state this right for the record, if you know anything about me, uh, you know what kind of person my person I am, and I just want to say trans women are women, trans men are men. There's no there's no but or if. There are no blurry lines there. That is exactly how I feel. That's exactly how I live my life. That is exactly what I try to uphold in my life and in the things that I do and in my projects, whether that's running Pathos Pagan or writing books. And if someone wants to think otherwise, I guess that's their business. But I think I've been pretty clear about that over the last five or six years, especially. So there you go. That's it. I just felt like I needed to say that. Seen a lot of transphobia lately got into it with somebody Sunday for saying something that was just really gross and yucky. I don't think there's any room for any sort of phobias within paganism, unless, of course, you're scared of spiders like Ari is scared of spiders. I'm guessing that's one is probably okay. But we're supposed to be an accepting community, and we accept people, and we expect we accept people of all varieties, of all infinite varieties. And we want people to be happy and to live their truth. Uh, their truth is my truth. That's just how it goes. So tonight, my guest is Mortellus. Mortellus has a book coming out next year. And usually I don't like interview people until their book comes out, because it's really not fair to you, the listener, to have to listen to me tell you how great this book is. But the book is called Do I Have to Wear Black? Rituals, Customs, and Funerary Etiquette for Modern Pagans. There are a few titles that actually live up to, you know, what they claim to be. This is actually one. There are rituals, custom, and funerary etiquettes in this book for all modern pagans, not necessarily just witches, which is always sort of a difficult thing. You know, we've all read a lot of books that say pagan, and they're really just about Wicca, not as much as maybe 10 or 15 years ago, but it still comes up. This is a terrific book. I'm very excited to have Mortellus as my guest this evening. You're already live, so if you if you like say hello, we'll hear you. Hello. There Hi. we go. That's what I wanted to. That's what I wanted to hear. How are you uh, this evening? 
hanging in there. I thought that I would, in the spirit of your home state, join you, join you from out in nature, watching beautiful sunset, and uh, have made a cocktail in spirit of the beach that you so love. Um, ordinarily, you might call this a sex on the beach. I'm calling this a sex in the driveway, uh, in keeping with all of our stay-at-home orders. In fairness, it's often easier to have sex in the driveway than on the beach. <laughs> as long as you don't have bucket seats in your car. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> sex in cars is so difficult. Oh, it's, it's the worst. Well, it's not it's the worst. The, it's not the worst. But <laughs> it's, it, they make it look easy on television shows, though. You know? It looks easy. I, I don't think any of those writers have ever tried it, though, really. No. Really, no. truly. No. I, I remember. Get, if we could get back. <laughs> I remember being if we forced. Get back, just like the, the. Get back to. Oh, sorry. We, I think we have a little lag. My apologies. If no, we, we get do. back to the 80s and we, ha- we, we had these giant boats of cars that were the back seat and the front seat were like an entire couch. Maybe it worked then. I <laughs> Yeah, I always had small cars. Like, sex in a Ford Escort does not work very well. I'm, I'm just going to throw <laughs> that out there. I think yeah. not. <laughs> no. For sure. Yeah. Oh, you know, there was there was a period where I was dating a girl, and she lived with her parents, and I lived with my father. And my dad didn't care what I did. I could have people over, but she couldn't spend the night, and she lived, like, a long drive. It was, like, you know, an hour. You know, so I'm not just going to take her to my house and have sex and then drive her back. You know, it's like four hours, almost four hours of driving, you know. And so we would try to have sex in the car and it just never particularly worked very well. I ended up finding someplace else to live just just to improve my sex life. <laughs> that, that sounds about right. You know, they're, they're, it's just how far I will go. Uh, to honor the inner pan within me and to make sure that the God does not abandon me. So it's important. So yeah, welcome to Witches, Whiskey, and Sex in the Back of Cars. I'm Jason. My guest tonight <laughs> is Mortels. We're going to talk about our sexual experiences in the back of cars and driveways and on the beaches. It's a different sort of show this July night. No, we're really not going to go there. I'm never going to get on Apple Podcasts with the with the content of this show. I feel like as a mortician, people so, always expect me to come on and be very somber and serious, and then I am definitely not, and I, I, that leads to disappointment, I feel. No, I'm glad that you're not going to be like that, because that would be the bigger disappointment for me. I mean, that's just that's just not fun. I mean, we're all going to die. I mean, you don't have, we don't have to be serious about everything all the time. Exactly, exactly. So you actually you work were, were, in... The funeral business, right? Like you do funeral shit. You're not somebody just writing a book about death because you know you have a morbid fascination with death. Well, you might also have that, but you actually work in the industry. So, what exactly do you do in the industry of death? I, I feel like work in the industry sets up an expectation that I might be respectable or even receive a paycheck. But no, I am uh, a mortician. I have a a big old mortuary sciences degree and for most of this pandemic have been working as a, um, a, a, a crisis mortuary uh, cleanup person, as it were. Um, 
for the Medical Reserve Corps and DMORC, which is the Disaster Mortuary Operational Response Team, which is sort of like the SEAL team of funeral employees. Um, we go in where things are bad and lend a helping hand. I like I like that you know the SEAL team of, of funeral services. <laughs> so what 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 is it that most people don't know about mortuaries? You go you go into great lengths in this in your book because most of us have no idea what goes on behind the scenes oh. of things, or even how to navigate something until you know it becomes a time when you have to navigate it. It's so funny. Um, I feel like it would be a shorter list to say what I what I do think uh, people are well-informed on, which sounds really crappy of me. I'm sorry. I, forgive me for that. But it's sort of like, uh, let's look at this COVID-19 crisis, which is truly a tragedy in our nation. But we've discovered how many people are uh, scientists. I did not know that most of the people who flunked out of high school were experts in, in uh, pandemics. It's been very interesting to learn. But <laughs> I would think that the funeral service, funeral service is much the same. Everyone sort of has opinions and ideas about what it is, and they're very serious and very firm in those beliefs, and most of them are wrong. <laughs> I, I think that uh, one, of, one of my bigger pet peeves is, you know, we, we have this idea that funeral is, just sort of these shifty elderly men in Grim Reaper suits, you know, where they're just like hiding in the back of their their office smoking cigars and cutting open corpses and running chemicals into them. But really, we, we have an industry that's been taken over by young people and women and just so many people who really care for the industry. And it, it really is a ritual process behind the scenes with, with so many people who are just deeply passionate about it. And, and I hope that I can inspire people to look at it differently. So here's kind of a more adjacent question. Like the first time you were alone with a dead body, was it weird <laughs> to be alone with a dead body? Or was it like, oh, yeah, this is I'm ready for this. I'm prepared for this. <laughs> That's a, that's a tricky question. I think most people expect that when you ask a question like that, that my first time with a dead body would have been in mortuary school, but it wasn't. Um, I, I grew up in a really small town, and I grew up in a situation where you had a lot of people who practiced home burial. So I grew up around individuals who would prepare their deceased loved ones at home and have a wake in their living room. All that feels very normal to me. So I know that you grew up in the South, but like where in the South, especially now that you're talking to me about home burials and wakes in people's (laughs) homes. I mean, maybe the little Midwestern kid in me had that going on around him and he was just unaware, but I don't think that I did. Uh, I would definitely... I would encourage you to go online and look up the National Home Burial Alliance. They have a wonderful website filled with resources, and you might be amazed to know how many people all around you practice home burial all the time. It doesn't sound like something that people talk about, though. It doesn't feel like something that people talk about. 
Right. You, I mean, you hear someone talk about someone who died or uh, they talk about a loved one who who had their funeral this weekend. You're probably not going to say, where? Where exactly did they have all <laughs> You're probably not going to ask for a map to where they were buried or details. It's true. I also guess a lot of how we think we should experience funerals or whatever is dictated by movies and television. And on movies and television, it's almost always a funeral home or the death occurs off screen and you see the reactions to it, but you don't ever really see the process play out in front of your eyes. I I would say that's probably very true. But to actually answer your question from earlier, I live in Western North Carolina, very, very adjacent to beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains, which I can see from where I'm sitting now. Um, all those beautiful layered rolling blue mountains that you see on the internet as as background images for websites, those were probably taken where I live. I also lived near the Blue Ridge Mountains for a short period of time in my life. Not North Carolina, but I did live in very rural Virginia, near the border of North Carolina, oh, wow. West Virginia, and Tennessee. So, oh, gorgeous so there's a, there. Gorgeous. Yeah, there's a little Appalachian in me. Uh, in a small town called Withville, which the locals pronounced Woofle. That, that took some adjustment <laughs> from Peoria, Illinois, to Withville, Virginia. I'm actually familiar with that town. I'll, I'll tell you a little known fact. I will give the Jason Mankey podcast a little secret insight to more tell us that no one knows. But I'm actually a professional face and body painter, and I ran away from home at 17 years of age and joined a carnival and spent almost 10 years of my life traveling with a carnival all over parts of the United States. And uh, I have face painted at the county fair in that town you you lived in. (laughs) I will tell you about the county fair in Wythe County, Virginia. It was the social event of the summer. I mean, it was a big, big, big deal in Wytheville. And not just was it a big deal to the people in Wytheville, people from the mountains would come down in their homespun clothes and be a part of the mm-hmm. fair. And it was really strange to see kids walking around that you didn't know from school because, you know, they were living far away, you know, up in the mountains and stuff in a completely different world than what we were living in. I mean, we were living in a world with, you know, video, MTV and videos and stuff. And, you know, they were living in a world without those things. And it was really different. And you could sort of tell, and, you know, we, everyone would always size each other up. Uh, very unique well, experience growing up, that's for sure. If you lived there at all between uh, 2000 and 2012 or so, we we probably crossed paths and you didn't know it. Oh, I'm so old though. This was a long time when I li- a long time ago. I mean, I was <laughs> living there in the era of Phil Collins when he was a big deal. Oh, wow. The videos I were, was watching were like Susu Studio and stuff. Huey Lewis and the News were big. <laughs> It was the summer of Return of the Jedi. You know, it's just very long time ago in a galaxy far, ever, far away. Ever so slightly before my time. Ever so slightly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I people think I'm younger than I am. I'm really like 79. So, you know, it's much, uh, much older than people think. 47, I, uh, really. But it feels 79 sometimes. Luckily, I am. I too am able to maintain my youth through bathing in the blood of the deceased. That's not true at all. I'm making jokes. 
I assumed it was a joke, but you never but you yeah. never know for sure. That that does sort of shed a light on sort of an amusing thing about working as, as a mortician. You you run into this this situation where no matter what you say, everyone's a little bit concerned it might be true. <laughs> because there's this sort of curtain between them and the experience you're having. So maybe she does. I don't know. I think there's some truth there just because it's an industry that people don't understand at all. I mean, we've had friends that are morticians in the past, Ari and I, you know, so it's not completely out of our wheelhouse, but in a lot of ways, it's just not something that people want to talk about. We don't like to talk about death as a society to begin with. You know, it makes people uncomfortable. No one wants to acknowledge death. Uh, So anybody who works, near death is going to be suspect to a small degree. That's, that's certainly a good point. And I think I think it's really interesting to note a couple of things about that. First of all, you know, they, they would say anthropologically that a culture that's very death-accepting is very sexually repressed. And the opposite is also true. The more sexually liberated a culture or a time period is, the more repressed they are about death, which... Is, what does that say about us as human beings? I think that's kind of interesting. But you know, when you when you have that sort of that touch of death on you, and people know that you're around it all the time, it's sort of like the ancient Romans and and miasma, or the ancient Greeks rather. But you you have that miasma about you. I think people sort of sense something something other about you. So I always try to keep this show as completely real as possible. And the realness of tonight's show necessitates that I run for 10 seconds and take a pizza out of the oven for my wife because I'm in, char- I'm in, in charge of taking care of her. So, you know, you know, I'll give you all a topic. Discuss it amongst yourselves. Since we've been left alone in the room, I think now would be the perfect time to tell you that I think Jason Mankey is a ridiculous person. I do hope people listen to this later, though. <laughs> I really do feel like I have, like, the most unprofessional podcast in the world. You know, um, hold on. I'm going to go take a pizza out of, my oven, out of the oven for my wife. You know, it's 15 seconds, but, you know, what, what are you going to do? And I'm not going to edit this out of the downloadable version of the show because I, I like the truth of it. That's reality, though. We're all human beings, and I hate that we have this this sort of slick internet culture where everyone can pretend everything is perfect all of the time. <laughs> I try my very best to to give people a view of, of the, the flawed nature of my life, like my, my daughter this morning having an utter mental breakdown about a candle on my altar being broken, such that, like, she wept over it, and we had to put a Band-Aid on it. <laughs> wow. So did she take yep. that as a sign of some of some sort? She said it was crying and broken and it needed a boo-boo sticker. And I thought, you know, who among us is not crying and broken and needs a boo-boo sticker? So. Is this your teenage daughter or the, or the younger <laughs> one? <laughs> no, it was the two-year-old. 
Sorry, it was just the joke was just waiting. It said, "Take me, Jason. Take me. Grab me. Run with me." Rihanna deserves that. That that sounds very her. She'll she'll appreciate that. I I think about that though sometimes. You know, like when you're doing magical work, uh, you lighting a candle for a particular thing, or let's say I burn incense often as an offering to certain deities. And have you ever had like the little stick of incense go out or the little charcoal briquette of incense go out and you're like, oh, they are pissed at me and are not accepting this offering. That, that is very true. That's a fun little uh, pagan superstition, I think. We all sort of have that, no matter how serious and sciencey we like to be. Oh, no, they don't like me. I don't know if it's superstition because I'll tell you, I don't think that people come <laughs> – listen to podcast interview podcasts to listen to the the interviewer you know talk instead of the interviewee but you know there are times when it feels like the incense offering is consumed very quickly like much faster than it should like the deity really wanted this and then it feels like it's being consumed very slowly. Like usually this is all burned away by now, but for some reason we're on minute 30 and, you know, it's still only the fourth granule of copal that is burned, you know? And so I, I do think maybe there, there is something, maybe they are trying to tell us something with various, various things. Um, speaking of, of deities and death, are you close to any deities that you associate primarily with death? That's a good question. It's a fun question. Um, oh, gosh. I feel like I'm about to go down one of those rambles. Forgive me in advance. We all sort of find our way to paganism in different ways, and that comes with all kinds of baggage of its own, right? Like, you... If you come to paganism through Silver Raven Wolf, you're going to have that stuff. And if you come to it through sort of personal, eclectic family stuff, you're going to come with that kind of baggage. And maybe your first introduction was Trad Wicca and everything is the Lord and Lady until it isn't or whatever. For me, I uh, I had a near-death experience when I was really, really young and encountered what I believe was the Morgan. So she's always been a part of my life. Sort of this angry mom that is largely disapproving of everything I do. (laughs) Later, I wound up uh, having a deity collect me. And I I often question myself about my work with this deity because, of course, when you are a Caucasian person, you can't help but question when you are working with things from other cultures. And uh, this is no different, but I had a dream of Orisha Oya one night during a storm and lit a candle to her and long story short, I now keep an altar. And when I started mortuary school, I built an altar to Anubis because it felt very appropriate. And then he was nothing like I expected at all. And I think when you have really disparate deities, there's this, this sort of, instinct, I think, amongst pagan folks to keep them really separate and give them very defined space, like they're, they're all kids that live in your house and they get their own room or they'll fight, right? But that's not really how my house works at all. They, they share little floating altars on one single wall and they sort of work together. Um, I keep 
unlit altar candles for the Morgan, and I work with her when I'm doing hospice work. If I know someone is dying, I put a candle there for them. Um, and then when they are dying, I, I light that candle, and if if they pass on, I blow it out, and I put those burned candle on Anubis's altar uh, during the time of their body preparation. And then after their funeral, when they're buried or interred or, or whatever the case may be, I move their, their candle to Oya's altar because she is a guardian of the cemetery. So they each sort of hold a role within the process of what I do. The Morgan is sort of a collector of souls in a lot of ways. Anubis is the preparation of their remains. He's that in-between space. And Oya stands guard over wherever their remains are placed. Yeah. I, I wish that like my deities were so streamlined and worked in sort of that assembly line kind of way. <laughs> mine mostly I... have nothing in common with each other and don't seem to be on the same page very often. I would like to clarify that for many, many years, um, Oya and the Morgan seem to have a tense, if not hateful, relationship with one another, constantly vying for favor in the house. And it was only after the introduction of Anubis that I sort of found that cycle. You needed so the intermediary. I'm yes, I'm so glad to have a piece at last. <laughs> So I know that you're a gardenarian, which, and in addition to, I assume, other things. Um, so, indeed, indeed. Yeah, so like, how did you get on the path? And I hear they use the word pagan a lot, too. And it feels like the word pagan is sort of falling out of favor these days. You know, people, when I was younger, you know, you were a pagan first, and then, like, what kind of pagan were you? It's like, I'd like a soda. What kind of soda are you? And now we just skip that. It's like, no, give me a fucking cherry Coke. You know, it's like, get there now. It's like, no, I'm a witch, and I practice, you know, this kind of witch. Not Funny. so uh, much like a general overview of things. People tend to be more specific these days. Um, I got off the tangent of my question, but, like, how did you come <laughs> to this environment in which we are now speaking? So. I would like to comment to the use of the word pagan. I um, I think a lot of people, especially at a point in time, maybe not so much today and maybe not so much in the beginning, but somewhere in the middle there was sort of a uh, culture of reclaiming the word witch as something empowering, where at one time, and definitely still is, it can be a, a pejorative, especially for women. I think being a woman in the world is one of one of those rare situations where you can call yourself a witch and be a witch or be called one by way of an insult. I look at pagan a lot in the same way. It's used pejoratively often. If you are not a Christian or Abrahamic, you are a pagan. And the funeral industry definitely uses the word that way. On my board exam, actually, defining what the word means, what well, it means someone who is not Christian or is hedonistic or uh, pursuant to pleasures. Um, and I, I found that insulting at the time. Uh, it made me angry. And I thought, you know, fuck it. I'm going to make that word mine. I'm going to use it. And that's a badge of honor for everyone who may get called that word by way of an insult. 
So I think for me it's kind of a reclaiming of the term, saying if this is what we are, we're an awfully big truck, and I'm happy to call all those people my family. Feels How did you I know, come we're, to be? Like, while we're on this, we'll get to the why you came to this sure. shit in a minute. Because, I, I mean, I'm fascinated sure. by how we use words. I'm fascinated by how these words have changed, especially in the last 10 years. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me is people that I would have thought of as pagans, and probably, you know, mostly still call pagans, at least in my brain, they don't want to be under that pagan umbrella anymore. You know, there's a, you know, you talk about the Morgan, there's a, especially like a current within devotional polytheism that bristles at being called pagans. No, I'm not a pagan, I'm a polytheist. And to me, you know, being a pagan was being a polytheist. They, to me, they were basically interchangeable terms. And now, you know, you just, you see that backlash. I've never been one of those people, but I suppose I don't, I don't have to clue you in on this, but maybe the rest of your listeners should know that I don't belong here at all. <laughs> I'm a complete outsider. I'm a total pretender. Um, I'm not very informed about those issues in terms of what people are calling themselves and doing, and it's not for want of trying. I think I'm just always one of those perpetual wallflowers, but I don't understand I, that, I guess. I say good for you. I wish that I wasn't as involved in shit as I am. I think, you know, sometimes the less you know, the better off you are. I think it's probably good for my mental health that I'm not, like, deep into Facebook comment sections or whatever. But for me, it's about just doing the work and honoring my gods and honoring what I'm doing for myself and my community and the world and the rest of that stuff can get bent. I I don't really care about it, but... I think also maybe that comes from having grown up in the part of the world that I did. I mean, I I grew up in the Appalachian Mountains where people are of a type, you know? The world views us in a certain way. And I I, I think it it doesn't really need pointing out, but it's obvious from the way that I speak that I've I've worked very hard to not be associated with where I grew up. I don't don't precisely have the accent, but... um, No, you did a great job. Getting rid of the accent, Thank like you. mine, mine still comes out when I'm drunk. It already laughs really hard. Once in a while, it'll creep out on me, and, and my husband usually has a laugh as well. But I, I think that you know, when you grow up being called words just by way of your existence, like you're a hillbilly, you're a redneck, you know, this kind of stuff, you have this instinct in the South to just sort of throw up your hackles and say, "Yes, I am. What about it?" You <laughs> know. Let's go outside and have a discussion about that. <laughs> but uh, you know, I don't I don't mind being called a pagan because that's that's a tribe I'm part of. It's fun. So you mentioned growing up in the South, and we're going to get to the witchcraft journey thing because I, I do love those kind of questions. I love people's super sure. thorough witch origin stories. But you grew you grew oh, up in the South. You grew up in Appalachia, and the last you know, several years, there's been a real big increase in interest of in the magic of people from that region. A lot of it, uh, Byron Ballard writes about it, but there's a lot of, uh, Orion Foxwood is another one. There are a lot of people kind of writing about indigenous magic traditions in, in the hills. Did you have any of those experiences growing up? Did you know people who were magic practitioners or maybe in your family? Uh-huh. 
That's a, that's a tricky question, and uh, I'm going to try and answer it in, like, a very diplomatic kind of way as best I can. I, um, I grew up in a fundamentalist cult. Think, uh, think something Far Cry might have made a series about, sort of that level. <laughs> if you poke about Western North Carolina on Wikipedia, you'll probably figure it out, but I, I'm not going to mention them because, you know, cursed names and all that. But uh, I, I grew up really isolated is the point of that ramble. And um, my grandparents were definitely influences. Uh, both my grandfathers died when I, before I was born, but um, my maternal grandmother, uh, her and her parents, they were Irish immigrants, and she definitely had some practices that if you had to put a word to them, you might call them druidic, but she would have never called herself that. She went to church. Uh, that's sort of a funny thing about Appalachian culture. You see all these people who you look at it sort of crossways and you go, you're definitely doing witchcraft, but they would bristle at that. They would never call it that. Um, Absolutely. My, my paternal I, that, Oh, yeah. That's just one of the things that always confuses me. Like when I see a book and it, like, you know, Appalachian witchcraft or something. And yeah, there's, I know there are magical traditions from those areas. And I know that those magical traditions have elements from things like the Key of Solomon and go back, you know, centuries in, in some cases. But those people would have never, ever identified as witches. Mm-hmm. For sure, absolutely. Uh, my my paternal grandmother, her mother was Cherokee, and again, this is a woman who would not have called what she was doing any kind of word. Um, but she definitely had practices that we would call occult or pagan. She planted by the moon, for example. She could. Uh, she doused, she would divine things using a bowl of water. Um, but to their, to her, those were, those were folk ways. They were, they were just something cultural. I don't know. It's hard to explain or describe. And maybe I've had too much sex in the driveway for that. But um, I, I definitely had those little influences around my life. And I think I, I had these sort of sideways influences from my my father. He was a master mason. And growing up, um, it was just a situation when he went to lodge meetings that I wound up tagging along. It's like there was nowhere to put me at the time, I guess. So I, I sat in what doubled as a gymnasium and their temple under the bleachers drawing while they had all their meetings. So I grew up watching these rituals and ceremonies, which that's got to break some kind of rule, right? But but I had all that in the back of my mind. That's awesome. I mean, to me, Freemasonry is like one of the, huge, one of the biggest building blocks of modern witchcraft, and it's something that most people Absolutely. don't really talk about or get exposed to very much. Yeah, and I, and I, I think there's this I'll say the unpopular thing now, I guess. I think there is this instinct or this drive to kind of legitimize Appalachian practices by, like, writing about history or whatever. And it feels very 1920s and 30s, Margaret Murray, right? Like, we're we're building this stack of stuff that later we'll knock over. But, I mean, it's definitely there. Yeah. It's, it's something 
it's something we can touch, and it was definitely something that was a part of my experience. I just I hope that we don't lose the real mundane day-to-dayness of those practices in the South by putting them on paper too much, if you know what I mean. You know, one of the things, you know, living, you know, grew up in the South, my parent, like my grandmother is Appalachian. I saw her recipe book. I got a copy of that a few years ago and I hadn't heard of some of the recipes in it. So my wife uh, went and we figured out where some of these things came from and they were all Appalachian recipes. Uh, You know, one of the things, you know, I think after Trump was elected, you had hillbilly elegy come out and stuff. And really like the swing votes tended to be Appalachian. So there was this all this renewed interest in that culture and that region and it would make sense that people would be interested in the magic, magical culture of that region as well. You know, it, it was kind of the hip thing to talk about for the last four years. I, uh, yeah, I also love you yeah, I also love that you like brought Margaret Murray into that because anytime you can say something <laughs> about Margaret Murray, it's fun. Right. If you can just like toss some shade toward Margaret Murray, you've done your day correctly a little bit. You were, you were talking about your, your grandma's recipe book. So I think I, I must have had one of those few grandparents who called it a receipt book. Have you heard that term used very much? Yes, I've heard that term, yes. Yeah, she, she always called them her receipts. But uh, her book had, you'd find biscuits right next to live soap, right next to a poultice for a broken heart, which, you know, they were all receipts. I mean, they kind of are in a way, you know, if this is after you've done it, if you use that, it's kind of proof that you made the the item in question. Oh, yeah. I know. Sure. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, my wife bakes, you know, she's updating her recipes and stuff to show what works and what did what didn't work. So I guess now we'll get to your superhero origin story. Your witchcraft origin story. I had to talk about the Southern thing, though, just because it just fascinates me, and it's sort of one of those things that's in right now. So what is your coming to witchcraft story? Was it, is it the story with the Morgan that you told earlier, or is it something else? Well, I guess all things are paths that lead to Rome, I guess. Um, I, I jokingly call my experience as a child my 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 Wiccan tent revival story because I definitely think it's one of those things that feels very powerful when you have you have a kid who's isolated and broken and in this bad experience and the worst possible thing that could happen happens. And if you all want to be depressed by that terrible story, it's in my book. Enjoy. Um <laughs> Thought, thought it might be awesome to just like pull my rib cage open and let you guys see what was in there because that's the kind of person that I am. But um, I decided after a series of bad events that I would um, attempt to take my own life at the ripe old age of five. And that sounds really crazy, but that is the thing that happened. And in reality, I collapsed in a hallway and was in a coma for four days in a local hospital because I ate a bottle of heart pills because that was my brilliant plan at the time. If you're feeling suicidal, please call a hotline. Sorry for these these themes. Um, 
But uh, in the interim, I had this experience where I descended into the underworld and I met a lady who comforted me and told me that I was not lost and broken and that I was loved and that I belonged to her and that I had work to do, that I had a purpose that I needed to keep living for. And I came out of that coma still a little kid and still afraid, but determined, stubborn. And I knew there had to be a reason for it all, and it gave me purpose. It wasn't until I got out of that situation and hit adulthood that I I really found a direction and I practiced what you might call some flavor of eclectic Wicca for a decade of my life before deciding one night that I wanted something more. And isn't this the depressing story of all of us, but I had this longing for family and belonging and connectedness and it felt like reaching out to other witches and pagans was the way to do that. And I I did this very self-serious ritual on Yule and made offerings and asked the universe, whatever that concept was to me at the time, to send me a sign. And you ever have one of those moments where you just have like this clearly defined image or phrase pop into your mind? Oh, yeah. Like, it feels like it's been there that forever. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was that moment for me, and it was the stupidest thing that I got mad at it. <laughs> it was Long Island, and I remember exclaiming out loud in my kitchen, in my circle, nude, because that felt right to me at the time. Um, the fuck is this, a cocktail recipe? This is the message that I get after putting myself out here. But I gave it a few days and found myself Googling words. And, you know, if you type Long Island and witchcraft into the Internet enough, you will get an answer to that question. And uh, a few few search results later, I found myself on Witchbox typing an email to a coven up north because there weren't any near me. And... Um, they were willing to meet with me that told me that I should send an email to the ones near me that said they weren't taking students anyway, and I did. And uh, long story short, that's how I found my way to Gardnerian Craft. I think for me, one of the things I've really valued about being a Gardnerian, and you know, your experiences will vary, and maybe mine are maybe ours together are both unique. But you mentioned family. And for me, it's always felt like an extended family. If I go to London, there's somebody that I can talk to or will want to talk to me because we're connected uh, through this particular faith practice, right? You know, and that that didn't really necessarily happen when I was an eclectic Wiccan. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think somewhere deep down in my soul, I'm like an 80-year-old church grandma who secretly wants to do like – um, Sunday school and church dinners. Um, just this week, I was helping some other gardenarians organize um, uh, a month's worth of meals to send to a gardenarian who just suffered a loss. Um, they, had, they had lost a family member to death, and 
you know, we all came together to try and send them some gesture of comfort because, you know, we are a family and, and we want them to know that they're loved and that we're there by their side, even though we've never met or shared space, they're still our family. That, that's beautiful. And I mean, that speaks to one of the powers of being in a tradition. And until you're in the tradition, you don't necessarily know what it's like to have that sort of around you. I know when I go to festivals, somebody will come up to me and they'll say, Jason, we're family. And I'm like, you're not family. I would know you if you were in my family tree. And then I'm like, oh, <laughs> you mean the other family? Oh, that's oh, cool. That. Yeah. We'll talk when, like, there's nobody else around. And we can talk <laughs> without worrying about other shit. Uh, so I want to talk about the book. We've got about 15 minutes left in the show. I want to talk about the book and the process of writing. Did I lose you for a moment? Oh, your book was one of the ones that I want to talk about your book, and your book is one of the ones that really grabbed me. I read a lot of books in the course of a year, uh, but there was something about yours uh, that was just unique and different. It was like nothing else that I've read in the pagan world. Uh, so I really think we should talk about it, and I want people to get excited about it. I know that it doesn't come out until, what, February of next year? Feb- yeah, February of 2021. Yeah. Which and thank feels you for, like thank you for your forever work. away, but <laughs> not as far as you think it is, uh, even though all of these days feel like a month while we're all locked up in our houses. <laughs> so... What was the process of writing the book? Where did the idea for the book come from? And what did you want to get across in the book? There's a three-tiered question. So you could just dig into that one. Hmm. I can get a sip of this cocktail first. We'll see. Well, that's the whole point of the like show. It's... you got to have a sip of the cocktail. <laughs> I feel like this this shall be a night of confessions on Jason's show with, with Mortellus. <laughs> I had no plan to write a book whatsoever. <laughs> I just want to get that out there. Hello, people of the world. You too can write a book if I did it. Um, I just hate a lot of stuff, and that's that's important to know about me. Um, I, I, I was functioning in this industry that I care a lot about, and I'm, I'm so passionate about this topic, and I, I want people, I want so desperately for people to have a better experience in death, especially pagan folk of the world, and when I say that, I mean what the funeral industry calls pagan folk of the world, by which I mean if you are not Christian or Jewish, you are pagan. That is how you are viewed, atheist and agnostic and witch and Buddhist alike. And I wanted to empower people to be able to walk into a funeral home and know what their options were and get their needs met and I just felt like that wasn't happening and people didn't have the information that they needed and um, one fateful day at Mystic South which everyone should visit when it exists again it should have been this weekend I should be there right now and I'm very sad oh oh it hurts I know I know it hurts so much but uh, I uh, I dropped into a to a Llewellyn pitch meeting with no prior intention of having walked into it. It happened on a whim as I walked down the hallway, and I stormed up 
very self-serious to a Llewellyn editor who tolerated me kindly and went on a ramble about this thing that I felt like should exist. Someone should write this. It needs to be. And uh, I guess in the moment I didn't really have any intention of that being me myself. And, uh, well, two weeks later I had a contract and was writing it. And I guess I I felt this, I don't know, I felt this um, requirement to be as authentic and human and relatable and honest as I could be and not make any of it serious or academic in a way that wasn't necessary or hide myself behind some some shield of serious author person when that is not a thing that I am. I, uh, I stumbled backwards into authorship, and I'm just so grateful that, that Llewellyn kindly gave me the opportunity to to write this thing and get it out there. There's a there's a ten year old. You've been writing though for a while though. You've been writing for a while though. This yeah. wasn't like the first thing you've ever written, right? I mean, I'm not saying you've written yeah. books, but you've you know written online sure, sure. and other places. When I was a little kid, I thought that I would be a poetess when I grew up. I wanted to write poetry, and I have stacks and stacks of embarrassing things that I hope to charm you all with one day. But um, I. Uh, I kept a blog, you know, I've, I've always been that, that, that sort of person, but uh, this is definitely the most intensive thing I've ever written, for sure. So I mean, one of the things that makes the book interesting is kind of a behind-the-scenes peek at the industry, but there are also a lot of rituals for crossing over, for people who have died, written for a lot of different traditions. It's not just Wiccan traditions. In the book, even, you go beyond just Wicca into various different types of kind of Wicca and witchcraft. How did you find the people that helped you write those sections? Because I know that you had assistance on with the rituals. <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly don't think that I'm in any way qualified to speak for any other tradition out there. And uh, I wanted to include some materials for for a wide variety of people, I know that I can't speak to every single group, but um, you know, we have a, there's a chapter of, of Druidry and Heathenry and uh, Thelema, uh Discordianism, Eclectic Wicca, British Traditional Wicca, and so on and so on. There, there are multiple. But uh, I just I, I reached out to people that that I loved and admired and respected, and and just sort of annoyed them a bunch until they answered me. Um, John Beckett, whom you know, was was so kind in tolerating many, many messages from me as I peppered him back and forth with nonsense questions about uh, druidic practices, and uh, he provided his own very vulnerable writings on what he would want for his death one day, and um, the lovely Leah Svensson, who is also uh, a mortician, uh, helped me with the, the chapter on heathenry. She has this amazing perspective and insight as a third generation heathen, that's something so rare. You you rarely see generational practice. Oh, and, for sure. Um, yeah, and um, a lovely Sora from uh, the OTO helps with the Salima chapter, and just all kinds of amazing people pitched in where they could on 
on the areas in which I was desperately lacking so that I could write something meaningful that, that really spoke to, to the groups in question. And I never, I never would want to feel like I was wicka-washing someone else's practice. Yeah, I mean that it really hasn't happened in quite a while, but I mean that was the th- that was the way of things in the '90s. You know, every introduction to paganism book was basically an introduction to Wicca, just swapping out the word oh. Wicca for pagan. How <laughs> for sure? How is it? What is what's your experience been like working with Llewellyn? Have you enjoyed it? Do you look forward to more collaborations in the future? Are you going to run screaming to Samuel Weiser for book number two? <laughs> I feel like that is a very loaded question, sir. You answer it. <laughs> what? I'm, I've, I've written seven <laughs> books. I mean, I'm done with seven, God. seven fucking books. And today I've like basically contracted for the next three. So, you know, I've, I can't. I've 10, you know, I've I like a decade of Llewellyn in my life. Of course I'm teasing. I, I've been uh, uh, really blessed, as, as you might say in the South, to, to work with the lovely Heather Green, who's been wonderful and has, I, and I don't want to undersell this statement, has tolerated me in ways no one has. <laughs> she has fielded the most inane uh, messages ever and uh, dealt with my incredibly linear way of thinking on forcible occasion. I think I might... Uh, have to be single-handedly responsible for them rewriting the new author packet because I've, in fact, sent edits on it. <laughs> but um, I, uh, I've enjoyed the experience. I really have. They've, they've been so kind and, and helped me get the vision out in a way that is cohesive and meaningful and in a way that, that will be good to the audience, I think. Well, you also have a beautiful cover for your book. And I don't want to say yes. bad things about Llewellyn and covers, but my first book had a giant pumpkin on it and nobody bought it. So, you know, covers are really important. And yours, yours Wait, is a I, good one. I, I have that pumpkin-covered book, by the way. I love it. Oh, yeah. So for me, I have friends, like, when they were writing their first Llewellyn book or whatever, and Llewellyn says, what do you want the cover to look like? Or what do you want the cover to not look like? They immediately put, you know, pictures of Jason's books and the please don't make my cover look like this category. <laughs> so I'm a little sensitive when it comes to covers. You know, I'm like a little freaked out. Uh, well, for the Horn God book, I just, you. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they would happily tell you that I sent them an insane, like, Pinterest mood board of covers that I love and art and fonts and things because that's that's in a nutshell I think. So they definitely knew what I what I was hoping for and they, they knocked it out of the park. I think they did a really great job of capturing what I what I was hoping for. I think for me it's just I'm so jaded and know that I have little in, input on some of these decisions. So you know, I just don't care anymore. I'm like, well, you know, you know the horn god book, well should have a horn should have a horned god on it. <laughs> what do you want? Well I want a horn god on it. There you go. And before I before I forget, I, I just want to say out loud how absolutely honored I am that the fantastic Amy Blackthorne wrote a forward for me. I'm I'm, I'm blown away by her kindness and, and taking the time to do that. 
You know, one of the things that I think a lot of people don't know about the pagan the pagan writing community is I don't think it's adversarial. I think most of us like each other. I think most of us want other people to succeed. It, it feels like a group of friends. It doesn't feel like a group of competitors to me. I can absolutely agree with that. Everyone has been just so kind. I feel like much like my experience with Gardnerian Craft, I feel like the second I signed a contract with Llewellyn, I was just welcomed into this wonderful little family of, of authors, and I've received messages and kindnesses just from so many people who've listened to me on the days when it was hard and supported me when I was upbeat about something, and my message, my messages are always like, I'm sorry, or good <laughs> luck with a question mark. You know, that's, that's my message after seven books. <laughs> you know, let, just, I've just seen too much. I've seen too much. Let me, you know, let me ask you a question before we have to go for the day. Yes. Where I am in the world, it's getting dusky and dark and the sun has set and all around me are this sea of twinkling lightning bugs. In the great debate of what those creatures are called, where do you stand? I always call them lightning bugs, but I think that's because when I lived in the Midwest, we called them lightning bugs. I know certain places in the South call them fireflies, but I was always a lightning bug person. I'm pretty sure that you could draw those boundaries from yard to yard in the town I live in, whether you're a firefly person or a lightning bug person. Well, I think the Midwest is lightning bug. The South is firefly. But Appalachia, which constitutes like Tennessee, Kentucky, Virginia, North Carolina, mm-hmm. West Virginia, I think there it just it, it's like a zone where it could be either one. You know, you can have a firefly totally or a lightning okay. bug. Yeah. Totally a nice I, Yeah, I, I know what they mean in both places. So, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to, when somebody says firefly, I'm not confused, which is good. They are beautiful for sure. Yeah, we don't have those in California. No lightning bugs, no thunderstorms. It's pretty sad. So we've got two minutes left. It's about time to end the show. So if people want to find out more about you, where can they find out more about you online? or other places? Hmm. If you really want to know things about me, you should probably track down the, the people who tolerate me as, as their high priestess, and uh, they'll just shame me to death. But <laughs> if you want to find me on social media, I'm mostly locatable by, by username Acro and the Dead, or by searching Mortellus on Facebook. And I am soon joining the family of Patios bloggers. So you can find me there at a crew in the dead as well. Yeah, I'm very excited. That's really, really soon. That's awesome. I'm like, we didn't even talk about that. You know, well, that's why we can do this again in the fall or yes. in the spring when your book comes out or maybe both. You know, I only really like to have people on the show that I actually like. So you know, <laughs> that means I'm only going to have ever like a, like a cast of 15 rotating guests. I think that's what's going to happen. So well, I as, I, as, I tell, <laughs> as I tell most people, I hope next time you'll bring the show on the road and we'll do a podcast from here and I'll make you some dinner, you and the lovely Ari. <laughs> oh, for sure. I love that. That's a great idea. I can't wait to travel again. Hell, I'd just be happy to be able to go to the next town over 
anytime soon. Uh, <laughs> I agree. My guest tonight was Mortellus. The book, the book is great. It's um, the book. God, I always like. I always have to be careful. I don't I never want to say the name of the book wrong, which gets harder and harder. Like the more whiskey that you drink during the show, <laughs> you know that's that's always the challenge. With, yeah, but the book is called "Do I Have to Wear Black: Rituals, Customs, and Funerary Etiquette for Modern Pagans." You can pre-order it right now online. It is really terrific. I read it, I think, two or three weeks ago, and I really, really loved it. I also really love Mortellus. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm Jason. This has been Witches, Whiskey, and Wit. We'll be back next week with another live episode and for the next couple of weeks. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you online. Thank you. Good night.